0: All right, let's continue in our study in the book of Matthew. Open up to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. The title of this message is The Other Side. The Other Side. We took a couple weeks off of Matthew, but we're back into it, and we'll finish chapter 8 this morning. So we'll be looking at verses 28 through 34. I'll be reading and preaching from the NIV version this morning. Matthew chapter 8, starting verse 28. It says, When Jesus arrived at the other side, in the region of the gatherings, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, Son of God? They shouted. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that is before us this morning, your living, active, true, inerrant, infallible, wonderful word. Thank you for this historical account we have of our Lord Jesus Christ and his power and authority on display, the freedom that he brings, his crossing over to the other side. Thank you for these things. We ask that this morning, Lord, as we're in your word, you'd give us understanding as to what your word means and to how it applies to our lives, how we ought to think about life and you and how we live in light of what your word says. So help us to tune in now. Help us to be faithful listeners and students of your word. And help me, please, God, to teach and preach in a way that is faithful to you and your word and helpful to us as a church. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well. Jesus here is traveling to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In case you were wondering what the other side was, it's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We've been in Matthew and he actually left or was intending to go to the other side with his disciples quite a few verses ago, a few teachings ago. So he's going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which would be the east side. I brought a little picture of the Sea of Galilee to show you. There it is. And that Region in the distance is the east side, that is the region to which Jesus and his disciples were traveling, and they were traveling from the west-northwest. Most of Jesus' ministry was in the north-northwest of the Sea of Galilee, that's where a lot of the disciples were from, that's where most of the action was, and now they've gotten in this boat, and they're heading to the other side, the eastern shore. And you can't really necessarily tell from this picture. But if you were there, you would know that the eastern shore was sort of the more rugged shore of the Sea of Galilee. The west side from which this picture is taken, the northwest has kind of rolling slopes and they ease down to the beach and there's broad beaches there and there's broad plains that empty out into the beach and there's lots of space. But when you get to the eastern side, as you can kind of tell from the picture, things get a little steeper, a little more rugged, a little more rocky. There's all these uh, little cliffs and crags coming right down to the water. So it's a little bit less hospitable as it was from a disciple's perspective as well, the Jewish perspective. That side of the lake, the other side of Galilee, was predominantly a Gentile region. It was an area known as Decapolis. There were 10 cities there, and they were predominantly Greco-Roman-influenced cities. Gadara was one of them. This is why it says that Jesus went to the region of the Gadarenes. So it wasn't only a geographically and physically rough place, from the Jewish perspective, it was a little culturally rough. It's very different from the other side and their culture and their endeavor to follow after God. It was a bit of the godless side of the lake. And you have to kind of imagine this scene from the perspectives of the disciples. It's been a long time since they started out on this journey to the other side. It was way back in verse 18 of the chapter, that was a long time ago, as verses go. Back in verse 18, Jesus said, let's go to the other side of the lake. But then a guy approached him and said, Jesus, I'll follow you. And he said, you're aware that I'm homeless, right? And the guy wasn't so attracted anymore. And then another guy came and said, you know, I want to follow you, but let me go home and take care of some family details first. And Jesus is like, that's, that's not really the gig. There's just a lot of people that weren't willing to follow Jesus because of the costs that would be associated with that. Some of the costs that would be associated. Some people just weren't willing. It would cost too much There'd be too much sacrifice involved in following Jesus, but the disciples weren't that way. The disciples were still willing to follow Jesus. And so they get in the boat with Jesus and head to the other side, it says in verse 23. And if you read the preceding passage or you were here a couple weeks ago when we spoke about it, you know what happened. They got in the boat and followed Jesus right into a storm. And they figured out pretty quickly that following Jesus was exciting, but it certainly wasn't safe. They went right into the midst of a storm. It was a life-threatening storm. It it, it, it almost cost them their lives. They said, we're afraid we're going to drown. And then after the furious storm, they finally get to the other side in this long journey. And when they pull up on the other shore on the eastern side, it's literally a horror movie that unfolds in front of them. It's sort of a deserted region. We're told that there were graves there. It was a graveyard, and those were generally outside of the city in a deserted region. And there are these guys who are demon possessed and they're living in the graves. I mean, it's like literally a horror movie. They're demon possessed, they're living in the graves. Uh, the Gospel of Mark tells us that they had been chained several times by the townsfolk, but they had broken the chains, so they've got shackles hanging from them. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that they used to gash themselves with stones. So there's this deserted place, there's these demonized guys, they come out of the grave, shackles hanging, self-inflicted wounds, blood squirting, and it says they were so violent that nobody went that way. This was a welcoming committee. <laughs> this is what it looked like on the other side. And, and to add to that, the disciples look, and there's a huge herd of pigs. Now, that doesn't mean much to us other than bacon, but to these good Jewish boys, this was not cool. Like, these were good Jewish boys. They'd probably never seen a herd of pigs ever in their lives. Maybe a couple, and it was like, pigs? Pigs? I mean, it was just the the big no-no in Jewish culture. But now we're told this is a huge herd of pigs. I mean, it uh, it would have been like an infestation of snakes or something to us. Demon guys crawling out of the graves, blood, violence, and pigs on top of it. After the storm. The disciples are tripping. Following Jesus is not safe. All the religious sensibilities are offended. From a Jewish perspective, this was all unclean. I mean, it was a Gentile region. That's already unclean. It was a graveyard. That's unclean. There's demons. That's super unclean. There's pigs. That's unclean. The religious sensibilities are offended. And I guess at this point, they're feeling a little bit like, I just want to go home. And then things get even stranger. Stranger. The demons in the guise start to shout at Jesus, right? We pick it up again in verse 29. It says that they said, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So the demons now... The, the, the demons in the guys, these guys with this picture and everything, they start shouting at Jesus. And it's interesting what they say. It's interesting that they knew exactly who Jesus was. They call him the son of God. It must have been interesting to the disciples because they had just been wondering, who is this Jesus guy? You remember in the preceding verses, when Jesus calmed the storm, they said, what kind of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey them. That was just in verse 27. And now in verse 29, the demons know exactly who he is. What do you want to do with us, son of God? And it's interesting, they also know exactly who wins. They don't only know who Jesus is, son of God, but they know that in the end, Jesus wins. They said, if you come to torment us before the appointed time, these demons knew that there is a day appointed when Christ will vanquish and abolish all evil. When the devil and demons themselves will be done away with. And they're just wondering if Jesus came early to open a can of whoop on them. And it was early. If we were to cheat and look at the back of the book, if we were to go to the book of Revelation, we see this. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the destiny of the enemy. That's the final place. People think that hell's gonna be this big party and Satan's like the MC or something. Not so. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that he actually prepared hell For Satan and his demons. So they know that there is this appointed future time. They know that in the end, Jesus wins. And even though they knew who he was and what he could do and what he would do, they still met him with a bit of a challenge. They said to him, What do you want with us? And it wasn't so much a question as it was a rebuff. It's a translation of an old Hebrew idiom that people would say to each other that more or less meant, What business is this of yours? That was the idea of the saying. Like if someone comes up and they start messing with your gig and you're like, Whoa, 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 who are you? That was the idea. Like, What what do I have to do with you? What does this whole thing have to do with you? Jesus, what business is this of yours? This tormenting that we have of this man and this region that we have locked down. It was a challenge. And it wasn't a challenge of identity. They clearly knew who he was. Nor was it a challenge of authority or power. They clearly know with whom it rested. It was rather a challenge to his presence on the other side. They knew who he was. They knew what he could and would do. But they objected to the presence of Jesus on the other side. And they ask him a strange question in this conversation that they're having. In verse 30, it says, Some distance from them was a large herd of pigs that were feeding. The demons begged Jesus, said, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and died with the water. Things just got weirder. The demons crawl out of the graves. They're yelling at Jesus. And then they say, hey, Jesus, can we go into the pigs? The disciples are like, what is happening? And it begs the question, what is happening? Why do the demons want to go into the pigs? That's a great question. I'll tell you why. I have no idea. I can't tell you why. I, I, I don't know. There's some great speculation. Many people after first service told me, well, here's why they want to go in the pig. No, we don't know. I mean, who knows these things? Um, here's why demons want to go in pigs. They're demons, man. They're weird. It's weird. It's weird. It's demons. What's even weirder is Jesus said, yeah, no problem, go. Why? doesn't... you? Jesus, don't you like pigs? Why do you, you send the demons into the pigs and then the pigs run down the cliff and they fall in the water and they drown? Why? No idea why. But it makes a few things clear. Number one, the fact that the demons go from the men into the pigs and then immediately proceed to destroy the pigs reminds us of something we need to be reminded of. That is the intent and purpose of evil. Jesus said this in John 10.10 about Satan. He said, the thief's purpose, the devil, is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life, speaking of us. Satan has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And you know, in our culture, evil is so good at masking itself, I mean, evil in our culture is so many things that are so consumable to us. It's the best movie. It's our favorite website. It's the way that we interact with one another. It's the substances we use. There's all sorts of ways. It's what we medicate. It's, there's all sorts of ways. The evil is mass in our culture, but this reminds us is that the moment the pigs got their chance, they brought destruction. They had already been tormenting the men. The moment they could, they destroyed. Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and we need to remember that because we, we, we often flirt with what God would call to be evil. We consume, we applaud, we loud, we allow what God would call to be evil. But this unmasks evil. This reminds us of the true intent. But happily, it also reminds us with whom the authority lies. With one word, Jesus said, go. There was nothing the demons could do without his permission. He was in absolute control. He didn't pull up on the shore and this horror movie of a scene unfolds and he's like, okay, boys, just get back in the boat. Just get, just, we're get, right? He was in absolute control. The demons are shouting. He's like, yeah, go. And then the demons die. He's like, see? Jesus has absolute authority. Remember what it says in 1 John chapter 3? The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus has authority over the enemy. And we already cheated and looked at the end of the book. There is coming a day where Christ himself will vanquish all evil in the world. And as we wait for that day, as we live in a world that is very much beset by evil, we find ourselves longing for that day. Even when we look at the evil in our own lives, We find ourselves longing for that day of the ultimate vanquishing of evil. But you know what this picture reminds us? This picture gives us a reminder in showing us a tangible expulsion of evil. Like when the disciples were there, they saw it. Like the demons left these guys and went into the pigs and then drowned in the sea. It was a visible, tangible Jesus dealing with evil. We need these reminders. Sometimes in our world, it feels like darkness is winning. We need these pictures where we say, oh, wait a minute, Jesus is in command. Jesus is in control. And there is a, a, a visible expression of the expulsion of evil. And in the story of the storm that came before the demons and the pigs, and in this story of the demons here and all of this water around, Matthew is continuing in his purpose, his theme of his letter. And that is to show us that Jesus is the Messiah of God, the only unique son of God, God in the flesh. That was the purpose of the book of Matthew. And he's been doing it, and he's doing it in these two stories, the storm and the demons and the pigs, by reminding us that when Jesus came, he did things that only God could do. That's the point of Jesus doing those things and the point of telling us these stories and reminding us that there is consonance now here with the ministry of Jesus and what he's doing and the story of Israel and what God was doing with Israel and that Christ stealing the furious storm and expelling the destructive demons is all in line with who God is and what God has always done for his people. Remember Psalm 89? Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? There's a rhetorical question. You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. How do we know? Remember this from a couple weeks ago? Because you, God, rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Pause right there. Remember we talked about the fact that in ancient Jewish culture and in many ancient cultures, water was a symbol of dark, brooding, mysterious, uncontrollable force. Often connected with evil. That's why in the book of Revelation, when the, the Antichrist, the beast arises, he comes out of the sea. It's the symbol of chaos, an uncontrollable, unchecked force. And how do we know God is God? Because God is sovereign over even the water. He's the one who separated the waters in the creation account. He's the one who parted the Red Sea in the Exodus account. He's the one who made the waters of the Jordan to stand up when they were coming into the promised land. And Christ is the one who said a word and the waves stopped and the wind stopped and it was completely calm. Matthew's saying, Don't, do, do you see who Jesus is? And then... Following the story of the demons, it comes after the story of the storm. It's just an illustration of the next verse. It goes on to say here in verse 10, You crushed Rahab, which means Egypt there. You crushed Egypt like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. Now, how did, in the Exodus story, how did God crush Egypt? Did anybody go to Sunday school? Or read a children's Bible. It's usually the third story in a children's Bible. Parted the Red Sea. And he parted the Red Sea when Pharaoh and the Egyptians were pursuing Israel and God parted the Red Sea and Israel went through on dry land. And when they got to the other side, God released the water and the water destroyed the enemies of Israel. And so Matthew is saying to his audience, look who Jesus is. He's the same God who is able to control the waters and even vanquish evil and the enemy and seemingly uncontrollable powers. He's a faithful, saving, all-powerful, loving God. Manifest on earth, Jesus is. Now that's what Matthew intended to tell us in this account. And we read that and we get that, and that's good. And then we generally think, well, yeah, it's a demon account. It's about demons, But I don't think that it's so much about the demons or the two men. I think after what it tells us about Jesus, it's actually about what it tells us about ourselves being pictured as a townspeople. I mean, isn't it strange how they responded to Jesus and all his power and all of his authority and his setting these men free and his deliverance and his crossing over to the other side to them? Isn't it strange how they responded? Verse 33, those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Isn't that strange? They, They wanted him to leave. It's clear what the concern of the herdsmen, those who were watching the pigs. It's clear what their concern was. It says they ran off to town and they told them everything, oh, including what happened to the do demon possessed man. As if that were an afterthought. It's clear that their main report was about the pigs. They went to town and they're like, dude, the pigs. What about the pigs? They're gone. The whole, the whole bunch of them. They're drowning in the Galilee. They're gone. What do you mean they're gone? They're gone. The pigs are gone, man. What happened to the pigs? Oh, yeah. This Jewish guy shows up on the shore. And there's, remember those guys that are down the road and they're demon possessed. And every time we tried to go down the road there, they beat us up. Remember those guys? Yeah, yeah. So he sent the demons out of them. They went and the pigs, but the pigs are gone. It's like their main point was about the pigs. That was clearly their main concern. And maybe that was the concern of the townsfolk. Maybe that's why they came and they said, Jesus, you know what? Even though they saw the demonized men in the right mind and clothed their mark, tells us, fully restored, they said, Jesus, we want you to leave. Maybe it was about the pigs for them. Maybe, start to listen to me now. (laughs) Yeah, start. Maybe... They are more concerned with what they had just lost than what had been gained in the acts of Christ. I mean, men who were tormented were set free. There was a loss, pigs, I mean. But maybe they thought what they had lost was greater than what they had gained. Understandable. Many have seen life that way. But what if... What if they misread their own best interests? What if the town folks misread their own best interests? They thought it was best to send Jesus away. What if they didn't understand what was best for them? What if Proverbs 14 is true? There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's a way that leads to death. What if they, like we often do, What if they underestimated evil? What if somehow to them the torment of these two men and the destruction that that brought and the violence and the darkness, what if that wasn't that big of a deal to them? What if they underestimated evil in its pervasive effects? And what if they, as our culture often does, what if they misunderstood Jesus? Underestimated evil not realizing it comes to kill, steal, and destroy and misunderstood Jesus not realizing that he had come to give life. Jesus had crossed over to the other side to give abundant life. Clearly, they misunderstood that. It would seem to me that on the other side life must get confusing. And we get that. You know why? We all have other sides. We all have this other side of our life. Places that are like the east side of the Galilee in the story. Where there's darkness that ought not to be there. Places in our own lives that have the stench of death. Places where we've allowed evil to go unchecked. Places where there are unclean things abounding. Spaces of secret violence. Where access has been cut off. Well, we all have the other side. And so we know that those places can be conflicting, confusing places. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And it was to the other side of Galilee that Jesus chose to go. And Jesus always chooses to go to the other side of our lives as well. And for the life of the Christian, when Jesus begins to poke around and pull his boat on the shore of our dark places, our places that smell like death, our places of unclean things, our secret violence, where access has been cut off, when Jesus begins to pull up his boat and step into our other places, as Christians, it's, Not as though we're resisting his identity, we get who he is. It's not as though we're doubting his authority and his power, we know what it is. It's that in those places in our life, we object to his presence. It's like when someone comes into your home, you have them over for dinner. Everybody has in their home a room to which they close the door when company comes over. Maybe it's a closet. Maybe it's a junk drawer. Maybe it's your bedroom. Maybe it's the kid's room, right? Your guests come over and they're like, oh my, what a beautiful home. Yeah, beautiful. We just spent the last four hours cleaning for you. But we know we only clean this side. But our nosy guests whom we love with the love of Christ, they want to go to the other side. Oh, what's behind this door? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't open that door. That's the other side. We all have those places in our homes. They're probably just dirty, but we all have those places in our hearts and in our lives and in our minds. They're also dirty. They're also dark. There's unclean things there. There's violence in those places. We've tried to block off the roads as best we can, but here comes nosy Jesus in his boat on our shore. And we say to him, like the demons, what business is this of yours? Let me just have this. And we sometimes find ourselves saying to him, like the townsfolk, please leave. But it is his business. And it's actually the business of Jesus to go to the other side. For eternity, Christ was in glory in heaven with the Father. And he came to the other side when he draped himself in humanity and was born of a virgin and laid in a filthy manger. Suffered on a cross in our place. It's the business of Jesus to go to the other side, to the dark places. And along with that, we find that the dark and ugly secret shores of our lives become the destination of God's love. I mean, what's happening here is that God really loved the gatherings. He certainly loved those two demonized men, but it's more it's about more than them, isn't it? It's really about the townsfolk. He really loved them. He went to their region. Their region that was tormented and dark and difficult. And when Jesus got to this dark shore, things got messy. There was some loss. There was some difficulty. What if when Jesus shows up on our dark shores and wants to deal with our unclean things, what if it requires a little mess sometimes? And what if in that we find ourselves worrying more about what we have to give up than what we have to gain? That's the story that preceded the story. There were those who weren't willing to follow. They were more concerned with what they might have to give up than what they had to gain an abundant life. And what if we sometimes live in confusion like the people on the east side of Galilee, and so once in a while we misread our own best interests? What if what God says is best for us is actually best for us? And in our confused, dark places, we misread that. And so we refuse that. And we say, what business is this of yours, Jesus? Please leave. And what if when we do that, we're underestimating evil and its effects for our family and our community and our lives? See, I find that I prefer the story that comes before this one of Jesus calming the storm. I like that one more. Because Jesus is in the boat with us there. It's not as scary as a horror movie, sure. There's a storm, but Jesus calms the storm. And he's in the boat with us. And I like that Bible teaching. You know what? In the hard times of life, Jesus is in the boat with you. Amen, brother, preach it. And he's in control of all the circumstances. Amen. Jesus is in the boat with us. I love that. But you know what I'm finding from this? If Jesus is in my boat, then eventually he's going to get to the other side. I don't get to say, yeah, Jesus, be in my boat, but don't come to the other side. Why, whoa, 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 why would you be in the boat? Unless you're going to the other side. And the hardest part about the story is they begged him to leave, and he left. It says in the next verse, chapter 9, verse 1, and Jesus stepped back into the boat and went back to the other side. The saddest part of the story is they resisted him and he left. I'm not sure exactly what to do with that. I know in the life of Israel, occasionally... Israel would continue to rebel against God, rebel against God. He would continue to draw them with cords of loving kindness. He would continue to warn them. He would send prophets. He would discipline them, but eventually he would let them get what they wanted and they would discover that they had misread their own best interests. I know that in Romans chapter one, it says that God has sufficiently revealed himself in creation so that humanity is without excuse. But humanity continually chooses to exalt creation and not the creator. And because of that, we head into all this perverse behavior. And there comes a time, it says in Romans chapter one, where God says, so I just let them have what they wanted. And in that, we experience the penalty of our own sin. We've misread our own best interests. I don't know. They resisted him and Jesus got in the boat and left. He's all pursuing pursuing, and his love is all pervasive. I don't know if he's pushy. In fact, it seems evident that we could push him away from those dark spaces. This is what's called the hardening of the heart. You know about this when you sin in your habitual sin. The first time that you do it, There's so much conviction and there's so much this feeling of, oh no, this is gnarly and wrong and you do it anyway. And then you do it again, you do it again, you do it again and by the time you've done it a whole bunch of times, that sense of conviction is gone. It doesn't feel so wrong anymore. It's not so hard to do anymore. You actually feel more comfortable in that sin. You've misread your own best interests. You've resisted Christ's presence in that place and in some way, You've got what you wanted. Please leave. Go back to the other side. This is the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3 talked about this. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning away from the living God. Pause right there. That's a good picture of what happened on the east side of Galilee that day. Turning away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it's still today, so that none of you will be, look at the phrase, deceived by sin and hardened against God. The New American Standard calls it the deceitfulness of sin. Elsewhere in Scripture, it's called the searing of our conscience. It's where we resist the presence of God, where we push him off of our dark shores, where we cuddle and protect those places of violence and unclean things, and we continue to block the road and cut off the road. And our consciences are seared and our hearts are hardened. And we're left to ourselves in those dark places, but that's not what Christ has for you. He's in the boat going to the other side. He wants to bring great peace and freedom and joy and renewal to the other side. If only they had seen what Christ did and could do and had anticipated what he would do and they had welcomed him to the other side rather than rejected him from it, how different might their existence have been? But these are conflicted and confusing places where we often misread our own best interests. So we'll finish by saying this. Where are, what are, our dark, distant, unclean, violent, stench of death shores where we've been resisting the presence and the love and the work and the conviction and the healing and the freedom of Christ. You know, you have yours in your mind. I have mine in my mind. Aren't you glad we can't read each other's mind? But think of what it would be like if you were to welcome Jesus onto that shore. You know, he wasn't speaking to non-believers. He was talking to the church when he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Speaking of our hearts, we have those hard places where they've become like doors that have cut off access. And Christ in his love who crosses to the other side to save us stands and he knocks. He says, if anyone just opens the door, I'll come in and I'll fellowship with him or her. You know the places, your distant dark shores and your doorways where Christ is knocking. You know what it feels like to say no. We've said no for so long. I know what no to God feels like. Can you imagine what it might look like to say yes to God in that graveyard? To say yes to God in those unclean and violent spaces? What do you think it is that God might want to do in the way of freedom and restoration and forgiveness and restoral? Restoral? It's not a word. Restoration, thank you. And renewal. We'll finish by reading Ephesians. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. That was the other side. That's where the Gentiles were. And their futility of thinking. They, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. There's that phrase having lost all sensitivity, there it is, underestimating evil, being desensitized, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, now we call it the other side, to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self. You know, the Bible says, if anyone has put their faith in Jesus Christ and asked him for the forgiveness of sins, that they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. Once in a while, we find ourselves with these deep, dark other sides, even in the midst of our newness. And the scriptures would say here, don't go back to the old other side. Live into the new who you are in Christ. Put on the new self. That's what it looks like to say yes to Jesus who stands on your dark shore this morning. Put on the new self in accordance with righteousness and in truth. So I want us to think now a little bit. Okay, we're just gonna kind of like be silent before the band comes up. It'll be too easy just to start singing and forget about this. I want us to like, I don't know, this sounds kind of creepy, but what if, what, if you, what, what if we, because we all have our dark spaces in mind, what if we just, like, invited Jesus onto that shore? So Jesus, go ahead. I, I've got this really dark, violent place. Or I've got these really unclean things that smell like death hiding here. I've cut off access from people and from you for so long from this place. Jesus, I want to invite you into my dark and distant shores. Don't misunderstand or underestimate Christ and what he could do in his love to bring freedom and healing and forgiveness. So let's just be silent before the Lord and sit with those things for a moment. We'll drop the house lights. Prayer team, you don't need to come up right now. Worship team will come up in a minute. Let's just be silent and let the Holy Spirit minister to us that truth. Lord, thank you for your gentleness in our places of violence. Thank you, Lord, for your willingness to enter where we've tried to keep out. Thank you, Jesus, for being the one who by your death on the cross. Cleanse us where we've hidden unclean things. Your word says, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus, that you bring new life and the aroma of life in our areas that smell like death. Thank you, Jesus, that you're more powerful than the evil in our lives that we've let go unchecked. That you're able to set us free and deliver us from evil because yours is the power and the glory and the kingdom. Thank you for loving us enough to bring light to our darkness. Help us in these places, Lord. If you need any help today, there'll be prayer team up here, here to help you. It's a great day to take communion and remember what Christ did for us on the cross, where he broke the power of the enemy and brought us new life, and where he cleansed us when we were fully unclean. And you could come, kneel before this wonderful Savior of ours.